Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. This Halloween weekend, follow us into the darkest, most chilling reaches of deep space for a new actual play miniseries featuring the hosts of the Dads with Nerdy Ambitions, 19 Hits the Dragon, and Tabletop Journeys podcasts. Tensions are high, the terror is real, and you can hear our screams. Be prepared for Aliens, a creature triple feature. Join your hosts for a weekend of horror, frights, and vicious abominations as they play through the Aliens RPG module Chariot of the Gods from Free League Publishing. Each podcast channel will feature one episode of the three-part actual play miniseries. Dads with Nerdy Ambitions starts with part one on Friday, October 29th. Tabletop Journeys continues with part two on Saturday, October 30th, and 19 Hits the Dragon brings you the thrilling conclusion on Halloween, Sunday, October 31st. You can find more details at www.virtualactualplay.com or by subscribing to all three shows. Make sure you don't miss a minute of the harrowing action. And remember, in space, no one can hear you scream. But that's why we have podcasts. Welcome, everybody, to tonight's episode. So before we get into kind of the meat and potatoes of tonight's episode, I did just want to kind of wax a little bit poetic about uh, how the polls for the soon-to-be upcoming Tabletop Journeys Side Quest Awards, the Questies, are going. Thank you very much to the uh, the Shadow and Bone Ben Barnes Brigade for uh, throwing something like 600 vo- votes behind your boy, General Kerrigan, for uh, best portrayal of a, fan- of a sci-fi character. Uh, uh, so that was uh, that was really nice to see some great uh, some great interaction with, uh, with a lot of those fans out there, which was fantastic. Uh, I am joined here tonight with my illustrious co-host Lee Wanika, uh, Mr. Miller, sir. How are you in uh, TTJ Studios South this evening? I am doing well. Uh, had a good day that started with one of the, my favorite things to do first thing in the morning when the ideas are flowing, the creative juices are juicing. I start typing, and what comes out of my Pretty little fingers. They're not pretty. They're big ham hocks, to be honest. But uh, is story ideas. Um, we You're have plan- you. That's- <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not for most of it. Oh, no. Seriously. I came into the office first thing this morning because knowing that we were recording tonight and we were talking about what we're going to be talking about, uh, I had ideas that I already had. I had a kind of a plan and a plot. And I said, I want to do more. And all the ideas came flooding in this morning. So about an hour and a half out of my morning went into really fine tuning uh, some some of the things that we're about to talk about. And I got really jazzed and excited. Honestly, if we could have gotten away without doing our nine to five jobs and recorded 
at uh, 7.30 this morning. I would have been happier than I am now, but all day anticipating this moment, I'm on it. I am ready to go. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I totally hear you. These are some of my favorite episodes when we take even just like a, a not a small concept, but a really important concept that we have seen used in expert fashion at tables that we have played at and, you know, and and used to, you know, I won't quite say expert fashion, but we, we have used uh, at our tables to, to great effect. Um, and uh, so tonight we are going to be uh, trying to crack open the egg that is legendary and lair actions. Now, uh, I know that the the best example uh, of legendary and lair actions that I've seen used at the table is once again, I think we've talked about even this particular uh, session before um, was uh, was with Benito, you know, friend of the show, maniacal DM that he is, uses legendary and lair actions to tremendous effect, including uh, one session uh, with my swashbuckler Electo, who uh, who wound up getting uh, caught uh, in a vampire who had more legendary actions than I think he had movement. So I mean, it was uh, you know, it was a it was a it was a pretty uh, it was a pretty raucous fight, and I. Definitely saw how how legendary actions. Uh, that's really the equalizer when you are dealing with tier three and tier four campaigns in particular. Is that eventually D and D will create heroes which are virtually unstoppable. Legendary and lair actions, much like the minion rules that we saw in Tasha's, are really where the equalizers are going to be. That's how you're going to go ahead and take high level campaigns and still make them competitive. Absolutely, nothing for nothing. Action economy is king. I've said it. Thousands of other people have said it. I'm not the first. I won't be the last. This is not a surprise. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like to think I'll be among the top 10, maybe. <laughs> I guess. Maybe um, if you keep saying it by number. If I keep saying 10. it by yeah. number, yes. we'll do it. Action economy is king. If you have more actions, you are tougher to beat. Yeah. Period. That's the name of the game. Yeah. Why fighters get additional attacks. Yeah. Additionally, because legendary actions are so wide-ranging, you can make those actions movement-based, utility-based, damage-based, or defense-based. And depending on how many legendary actions you're giving your, your stat block, your enemy, your antagonist, you are determining how awesome they are. If you, uh, you want to make a creature... That is exceptionally violent, very dangerous, and hits all day long. Give him multiple legendary actions that do damage. Yeah, yeah, because they always happen at at, at uh, initiative round twenty, so it's always at the top of the round. Yeah. Well, actually, that's not true. Legendary actions happen and can can happen in different ways. I'll go into that when we get into the nitty gritty on legendary actions. Layer actions tend to happen at a specific uh, right. initiative number. Yep. And again, we'll get into the we'll get into the nuts and bolts and how you mechanically and surgically utilize these techniques, utilize these tools, some best practices, some things to avoid, and some tips, tools, and techniques. Uh, and, and idea fodder. We're going to throw out a lot of idea fodder tonight. That's what really that's what really makes me excited about it, is that yeah, we're going to no, really we're going to talk theory, we're going to talk craft, and then we're going to talk usage. Yeah. So. Here's the uh, here's going to be the fun part. I got inspired by the by the topic tonight uh, and started uh, started writing some down um, and came up with a bunch of legendary and lair actions. Um, however, uh, full honesty, I did not look at the rules for writing them. I just kind of went by inspiration, which normally guides me pretty well. So I think I'm going to be okay here. But I am curious to see how well they hold up to the uh, the A. Liwanika Miller legendary action template that is about to be uh, to be revealed to the greater uh, Tabletop Journeys public. I'll let you in on a little secret. If it doesn't fit the legendary action rules, call it a layer action and make sure that character fights in a place he calls home. Mm. Yep, fair enough. I will say that for sure that the um, that lair actions definitely seemed more powerful. I see. I always thought it was the other way around. I always thought that legendary actions were going to be more powerful than lair actions. The lair actions that I created are fairly fairly obscene, um, and the le- the legendary actions are no slouches. Don't get me wrong, but the lair actions are like, damn, this is this is powerful. On some level, I think legendary actions unless you're talking about being on a legendary creature like an ancient dragon right um is a bit of a misnomer you can't call it bonus actions because they already have a bonus action 
So I don't know what you I don't know what you would want to call it, but it's effectively just another action. A great segue to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of what legendary actions are. In at its core, in, at its basic, creatures that have achieved legendary status, that's what they call them, like an ancient dragon. So this is the template for all of these types of actions, can get a number of legendary actions to use each round. And this is the key. It's a number. If you're looking in the monster manual, any creature that has legendary actions will have a number. Some are one, some are two, some are three, but there's nothing in the rules that stops you from giving a creature four, five, or six. And by (laughs) the way, it's not even a homebrew if you're giving legendary actions to an existing template. You're just saying this is the baddest of the bad orcs. So you can take your orc pirate or your captain of the guard, throw on three legendary act- actions, and this is the greatest orc captain ever, or or, or captain of the guard ever, uh, Sahagan priest ever. Any of the templates you find in your monster manual, Volo's Guide to Monsters, or on that excellent tool, D&D Beyond, and there's a ton of them in there that are part of the various source books. There's a ton more if you go into the homebrew that other people do. Watch your balance on some homebrews. It's not a dig. That's just the reality. If, if it hasn't been balanced by the official content, it can sometimes be a little unwieldy. There can be some unintended consequences. Anytime I've created homebrew, I've created homebrew that's uh, specifically tailored to go ahead and give the creature that I've created the homebrew for an advantage. Like that's, you know, that's what homebrew does. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. So let's dive in here then and start talking about, uh, we're going to start tonight with legendary actions and then we'll go to layer edge actions after that. So, what do you feel is the model that serves the creation of custom legendary actions? Because I mean, so four or five and six legendary actions sounds absolutely crazy. Like that sounds ballistic. But I also hear what you're saying about how you know it can basically be the baddest of the bad, the best of the best, the biggest of the big. Um, you know, and then and then deal with that. What do you think is the the model for crafting a good legendary action? One storyteller has to know their party. Uh, a party of four versus a party of eight can really play with what you want to put on your antagonist. And I don't think you should ever put all of them on a bunch of them on every character creature they face. Um, Not even every boss they face, because if, if they start happening on everything, then guess what? It's not special anymore. And the idea of legendary actions is make this legendary thing or make this creature legendary. So, should it happen often? Probably yes, depending on your tier. Tier one, maybe once. Yeah, at, at, at the end of tier one. It's, it's like, the, like the big bad at the end of tier one. At the big bad at the end of tier one, above that big bad, uh, that tier one boss should prob- could probably or should probably have one legendary action. And it should be very signature. Like whatever you end up doing, and we'll get into the options there, make it very signature. Make sure it speaks to the core of the character that you're trying to develop in this in this uh, tier one boss. Now, tier two, mini bosses, lieutenants, they could have one. The big boss should probably have at least two, possibly three, depending on the strength and the way your party is working. If you have a party that doesn't work very well together and they are average size and they're hitting sometimes, they're not hitting a lot of times, but they miss a lot of things, you probably don't want to go three legendary actions. That will wreck your party. Yeah. However, if you have a party that has significantly gelled, like they are a fine, well, well-oiled machine, you could probably go three legendary actions on a tier one boss. But man, but manage the flow of your combat. Know where things are so you can make adjustments round by round if need be. Um, tier three, you're going three strong legendary actions. That boss should probably be fighting in a layer. So you don't have to give him six or seven legendary actions because he's in a layer that will have at least one layer action in addition to his two or three legendary actions. When you get into tier four, all bets are off. Four legendary actions. One of them should at, at least one of them should be a recharge. So there's a chance it works, a chance it doesn't. And that should be your most powerful one. Like this is boom. Yeah. The wizard's dead if I hit him, but I can't always (laughs) use it. Right. Right. But at the same time, that tier four boss ought to be fighting in his lair. 
and his layer needs to have two or three legendary or layer actions that are very potent. And likely they have some regional effects that the players had to fight through to get there. So there were minions and regional effects that they had to deal with. Then when they finally get to the layer, now they've got layer actions and the lieutenants, and then they fight the big boss who has his full arsenal at his, at, at, at his beck and call, plus three or four legendary actions with at least two of them being powerful. That makes that plus some terrain stuff and, uh, other encounter stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes yep. will make that sing. But that's how I think of in construction. I'm literally looking to put those types of elements in. Uh, as far as how you use them, just keep in mind the number of legendary actions resets at the beginning of the creature's turns. Legendary actions cannot be saved. If you don't use them in that round, they're, they're wasted. The other thing you want to keep in mind, legendary actions always take place directly after another player's turn. Yep. And a creature cannot use more than one legendary action between players. So if your fighter goes, your dragon can use a legendary action after the fighter. He cannot use another legendary action until after the cleric set. He can only use one legendary action between each one. He could have five or six. And he, so he could go player, legendary action, player, legendary action, player, legendary action, player, legendary action, so on and so forth until he runs out of action. But he cannot do two, two and one. So if you're a storyteller and you're saving your legendary actions, there's only three more people to go and you've got four legendary actions. You've already wasted one because there's yeah. not enough time to use the rest of them. So keep that in mind as you go with your players. Pay attention to where your creature sits in initiative and where the rest of the party is because your legendary actions are always after you and in between the players. So the higher you are in initiative, the more chances you get to do your thing. I like that. And I like what you're saying, too, about how as you go through the tiers, just giving your creatures, just giving your big bads legendary actions uh, really isn't going to be enough. You also want to go ahead and augment that with lair and with regional conditions and stuff like that. Like the idea of fighting through waves of minions through the snowfields to get to the lair of the ancient white dragon, like that is that's really evocative. I mean, that's, that is cinematic. So that's a, that's a really cool, uh, and you know, and then just to get there and realize that the, the, uh, the ancient white dragon has got his own legendary actions and lair actions. He's commanding the snows. He's commanding the ice. He's commanding the cave walls, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. That ancient white worm who, and even though ancient whites are not as smart as other ancient dragons, they are smart enough to make sure you're fighting Yeti. They've had avalanches and snow conditions on you. You walked over a frozen lake that they can make just unfrozen enough for you to fall in and then have to and barely get out of. And then by the time you get to them, now you're fighting frost giants, the remaining Yeti. And then when you're all done with that, now you're getting strafed in the middle of a frozen valley. <laughs> nice. Okay, so let's go ahead. I'm going to dive into some of the examples that I wrote. We can go back and forth here a little bit, uh, uh, trading uh, examples of legendary actions back and forth here. I want to start with the first one. So the way that I kind of got in here is I literally Googled legendary actions and went to lists. And you can find lists out there. And then I just kind of like started going through the list and picking out elements that I liked to various pieces and, and not. Um, so the, the first one that I came up with here um, is a legendary action that I'm calling cannon fodder. The, uh, the legendary action reads, uh, the creature magically commands one of their minions to take their take their movement and dash actions for double movement. And at the end of their movement, the minion explodes, dealing 46 fire damage in a 15-foot radius. All creatures in the radius must make a DC 15 dexterity check and on a success only take half damage. Basically, it's a portable minion fireball is what it is. Again, it seems super cinematic where where you've got the the big bad kind of commanding one of his uh, one of his minions to go ahead and rush into the heart of the of the uh, uh, the heart of the party. The first time that it happens, the party isn't going to understand why that poor little kobold is doing a suicide run at them. Um, but then every time after that. Uh, it's going to be something that um, attacks of opportunity are going to weigh in, and they're going to want to make sure that they t they're taking out that kobold before uh, he explodes in the middle of the of the uh, of the party. Yeah, anytime you're putting 
a creature in uh, up against your party that explosions that explodes it's a good thing i i mean I, how many of us were reading dragons of autumn twilight the first time one of the draconians exploded <laughs> like we got used to them turning to stone and destroying a sword but the first one that exploded that was some sh- some stuff i mean i freaked out <laughs> when i read that like yeah. i was like yeah, ah, no, ah yeah, what do no, i do with that no and, doubt um uh, you know, players at my tables are very used to, especially the ones in the north. I love to use a free little mini elementals, the smoke mythit, the ice mythit. Oh, I love them because while they don't hit a lot, they're the perfect end of tier one thing. Because when they explode, it's always a save. So yeah. even if they don't hit well, their actual death does more damage. I almost took out a party just by the party beating them feats. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was like w- one coat of cold and, a and like five Mephites almost destroyed a, a level yeah. six party. Yeah. So that was, that was why I kind of, so I originally had the damage as eight D six instead of four D six. And the more I started realizing that if you're thinking about your big bad, who has three legendary actions, that's three times per turn, three fireballs per turn that the big bad is, is, uh, is casting without actually having to go ahead and take any of his actions. And I thought that that was too much. And so that's why I scaled the damage back to four D six. Um, and that's why I also gave it, um, instead of uh, a save against, uh, against the, uh, the effect. Um, that's why I gave it a, a, a dexterity check basically to oh, dexterity or acrobatics or whatever you know that kind of thing an acrobatics check to go ahead and uh, get out of the way um well uh i know when i get into my legendary my layer actions i did some toying around with the damage because i wanted it to hit certain marks but i didn't want it to be too bad uh there is a sweet science uh in in the boxing metaphor kind of way to how one works on damage right because you want your average damage to be enough to be threatening, but you don't want that average damage to equate to dice that are so high that if you roll well, you're acing the party in one shot. And that's where the, and it becomes a sweet science. So knowing one, the type of dice is appropriate for your party level size and makeup versus the number of them becomes important. You know, when is 2d4 no different than 2d6? When does 3D6 become less good than 4D4? Even though the highest number rests with one and not the other, the average becomes more somewhere around the way. So there's, and there are people who are far better at math than I that can figure out (laughs) all of that. Uh, I think in this regard, I'm a little more, look, I'm from Ithaca, New York. And while we have a lot of great scientific minds, we also have a, a lot of great metaphysical minds as well. Ithaca is that perfect blend of the mind, the body, and the soul in that you have to blend all of these things. You have to think logically, but still allow the spirit to rule rule your actions. And uh, that's how I think of my hometown. Uh, anybody from Ithaca, I hope you feel the same. Uh, that's mad love for you. But I can tell you, that's how I feel about my dice. And that's how I feel about when I'm, when I'm crafting. I am thinking logically, what are, where are my averages? Where are my numbers? Now, does this feel right? Does this sound like this amount of dice seems like, ooh, that's a lot, but I'm going to I'm gonna risk it versus I'm not fighting that. I'm out, right? Because you have to find that sweet spot. And honestly, logic has nothing to do with that sweet spot. Yep. Nope. You, you, you got to feel it. And that's and that's honestly why I scaled it back. Like I said, I started with 86 fire damage. I really just thought that that was too much for the amount of times that a a legendary big bad could use it. It had nothing, it had list, little, list, less to do with how much damage that one instance of it did. It had everything to do with the fact that that could be repeated over and over again. And that was, you know, that was kind of where it came by. When I was constructing uh, or looking at legendary actions, I went to a project that I've been working on and then nearly complete with. uh, I'm working on uh, stat blocking a large array of dinosaurs. And so I started working on different things that would work uh, well. Uh, And while it's not unique to dinosaurs, the tail whip becomes a perfect legendary action. Mm -hmm. While it is also a great action, it makes for a perfect legendary action because it's just that extra thing that can happen. Assigning a tail whip, giving it a basic attack, 
giving it its reach based on the size of that tail uh, for that creature. I'll go with an Apatosaurus in this example. It, you know, uh, this is designed as a CR4 creature. So I went with a plus seven to, to hit. Uh, it has a reach of 30 feet on this gargantuan beast. And uh, it basically uh, ha- can hit one target with its with its tail. I could have done more, but I felt that this was more because of the size of the creature. It, it this fit for the yep. for the CR rating. If I wanted to make it a much higher CR rating, I could have gone with an area attack and given it a, a, a save of some kind. But essentially, I actually did end up going with a save because I think it's a great uh, uh, as part of the equation. So it's definitely got a two hit, but then there's a, a, a DC 14 save, and, and it's a strength save. Character can use whatever uh, skills it wishes to use to augment that, but essentially it's a DC 14 save or on a, on a successful hit, or they're knocked prone. Hmm. And th- that's something I really like to do with- yep. uh, Imposing with conditions, my, yeah. With, with le- with my legendary actions conditions, far too many parties have the Forge Cleric with the twenty six AC or its near equivalent, a four hundred pound Warforged with a twenty five AC. Far too many, like very hard to hit with with attacks. So if you land one, get a condition up on that. Make it so you're halving their distance. That it makes it an attacking battlefield control issue. When you st- slow their movement, slow their positioning, you're turning the tide of battle uh, and those are the kinds of things i like to see with legendary action yeah totally uh i will tell you that so i had a couple where i started getting a little creative uh they they you know there are only so many legendary actions that you can throw out there um that 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 just do damage or anything like that and so i started playing with uh with the concept of conditions and with the concept of manipulating the party in other ways yeah. other than just doing damage um this was one of my favorites it was called i called it commanding word and uh, he- here's the text of it. Uh, target uh, A creature targets a spellcaster. That spellcaster has to make a wisdom saving throw versus DC 15. On a failure, the creature using the legendary action can cast one of the target spells using their spell slots on any target, including themselves. Ouch. So that's that's the you know big bad gets in your head, st- steals one of your spell slots, steals one of your spells, and targets whoever he wants with it. So you, now your wizard with fireball is not just a danger to the big bad, but he's also a danger to your party. Absolutely. So one of the other things you can do with legendary actions is you can just use it for the casting of a spell and not have it take a spell, uh, a spell slot. If you're fighting big bads who have, who are imbued with magic, and this is perfect for magical type enemies, you want to fight a lich, have them cast some, big spell that utilizes necrotic energy as a, as a legendary action some kind of life dream thing where however much damage they do the target does a um does a save if the target fails to save the uh the legendary creature gains all of those hit points like a life train type mm-hmm. of effect uh, yep. i've i've yep. used that legendary action where i use the basic mechanics of eldritch blast and then I added in a constitution save. So if successful in hitting, so dice command whether or not it hits or not on this legendary action, then the target does the save. If the target makes a save, they just take the damage. Bad guy gets half the, half the life. The ba- if they lose the save, bad guy gets all the life. And I do that with a necrotic spell because that becomes something that cannot be immediately healed. So it's even nastier to the other player, has the potential of knocking them down so they can't get back up, but also is very evocative when you have the undead draining life from the living. Uh, if you if you really want to do something nasty and you're in a tier four type campaign, have your minions be zombies, but have their attacks do that. Have every successful zombie attack have this drain effect. You're saving, it goes back. Slow you down a little bit to get that save, but you want them rolling that dice. You want them fearing every single zombie attack. You'll be amazed how how easy it is for a group of players to not worry about minions, take whatever hits they're going to get from minions to tee off on the boss until 
five, six minions are draining their health while they're hitting. That, that's, <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. I had one other really kind of cool one, which again, kind of started to play with the whole concept of battlefield control and everything like that. Um, uh, this was another, another implementation of new ways to use magic, right? Um, and they called it empowering word. An empowering word uh, is that a, the legendary creature can use a spell slot of up to fifth level to create temporary magic weapons. The legendary creature makes a wisdom save against three times the number of target minions within 30 feet of the creature. And on a success, turn their weapons in that they are handing into a magic weapon. The magic weapon gains a two hit and damage bonus equal to the spell slot level expended. So if I expend a fifth level spell slot, I can make a wisdom save. Three, uh, I have to make it. It's it, the the DC is three times however many creatures it is. So let's say six creatures. So it's a DC eighteen, right? Make a DC eighteen wisdom save. Now they all have plus five magic weapons. So I really like that. However, my only concern is the bounded accuracy boundary typically caps things out at three for plus. Oh yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So I might say up to third level spell. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And that way you stay within the maximum confines of the game, but it's still nasty and powerful. Yep. And, and you know, and I'll, honestly, too, like the more I'm reading it, too, like that's less of a legendary action because it's not really repeat. I guess it's kind of repeatable. You wouldn't repeat it very often. Yeah. I, I think that trends, like you said, more to layer uh, and possibly just a, a given power of your enemy. Like, I really like that. I think uh, that works really well for some kind of mystical or elven general or um some kind of again undead general who's commanding an army of skeletons it's honestly just a spell uh, yeah that, that's fair it's honestly just a spell it's like not really yeah. a legendary action but i like it we we can we can we can monkey with that and get get something good out of it i, I think yeah we, we, we can certainly work that's got that. some bones so i think as far as legendary actions we've talked about how they're placed we've talked about their general construction we've given some great homebrew examples. The one thing I would kind of close out on legendary actions, at least for now, is um, there are great, great resources outside of just your official D&D books. Uh, one of the ones that I found that I found very useful in preparing for this was Flutes Loops. Uh, we'll have the description in the show notes, uh, and I'll uh, another great one I saw was BlackCitadelRPG.com, uh, which was pretty decent. But I like, at least as far as legendary actions, Flute, flute Loot's uh, setup because they listed, they did some exhaustive research and kind of put together a list of all the uh, legendary actions uh, that, you'll f that, that you can find, what books they're in. And, and it really gives you a great idea, uh, not necessarily what books, but what creatures have them. So, like, there are some legendary actions that multiple types of creature have. So they then list all the types of creatures that have it. So if you're looking for an idea of where to start or you just want to go with something you know is mechanically sound, it has them all in a grid. You look at the ability. You look at what it does. You look at the creatures that have it. So you're like, oh, that does flavor like, yeah, I had a sense this was more like a black dragon and so-and-so. Well, there you go. Uh, dragons have wing attacks. Dragons have claw attacks. An extra claw, an extra wing, an extra bite. They've got things for vampires. They've got things for liches, uh, things for unicorns. There's, it, it's a really nice, tidy package. For entry-level storytellers, it's a great place to start. For people who are working on homebrews and what do I do to flavor it this way or that way, it's an excellent toolkit to have in your back pocket. So I go back to that often. So I wanted to share that with everybody. Yeah. They're yeah, not sponsors. Great. They're not sponsors, but we like what they do. And we're all about showing the love to other content creators out there. And, you know, call your voice GTJ. <laughs> hey, that's my <laughs> line. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mikey. Did you know you could have been listening to this episode two days ago? That's right, because early access to our episodes is only one of the benefits that we offer to our Patreon subscribers. You can get early access to every show, exclusive content, 
and the opportunity to throw dice with your favorite hosts every month. Right now, we're running a membership drive through the end of November for our first anniversary. If we reach 20 subscribers by that date, we will start a regular live show. And when we get to 25 subscribers, we're going to open our tables for a second Patreon-exclusive game. So if the actual play episodes aren't your thing, you can still join your hosts on the download. For more details, go check www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys, where you can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. And thank you for enjoying the show. Let's move. Uh, let's move from legendary actions to uh, it's the big ugly cousin of the legendary action, the lair action. So I really found in kind of creating my own um, that boy imbuing a locality with intrinsic power. I I don't know whether it says more about me or more about the rules, but boy, these la- these lair actions became really really powerful and i only wanted them to be more powerful like it was like i was like cackling like a mad scientist putting these together yeah it i I will say this i i don't often preach restraint (laughs) to uh storytellers yeah when it comes to layer actions talk to a friend call your boys here ttj we'll at least talk you through like that's some devious crap the you know like i want that exactly as is or maybe you want to ratchet that back maybe that one for a tier one a quad of level two yeah non-martial characters will not work um you know but i do think some restraint when you're crafting your own or when you're utilizing these comes in because you got to know where you are the idea of course is not to always tpk but you want to give that viable challenge that's hard that's on the edge. You want them to walk out of there knowing that, man, two more hits and I might not have made it, but you want them to make it, right? So with that as your guidepost, you got to be careful with with the, the layer actions. So this is, it's really funny. So my legendary actions were very much about, um, about damage and battlefield control. Absolutely. Um, my layer actions were much more about... They're much more about conditions. They're much more about condi- like affecting checks and affecting conditions and everything like that. Um, let me uh, l- let me share one that uh, I'm just going to dive right to the one that I'm actually like most proud of here. Right. Uh, so this is a layer action that I called "Killing Rocks." Years before anyone remembers when necromancy was being born through experimentation, the cave of Caplanette was a popular spot for young students to experiment with their dark rituals. The magics they were tapping into were poorly understood, but left their mark in the stone. Being in the caves have the following effects. One, any medicine checks are done at disadvantage. Two, any time an effect which heals hit points or provides temporary hit points, the number of hit points, minimum of one, and the number of targets, minimum of one, is reduced by half. Three, if a character is at zero failed death saves, the death saves are done at disadvantage. There is something just magic about walking into a cave imbued with necromancy and just having it like the one that I, the one that really gets me is the healing, right? Because like yeah. that that's the thing. Like if you've got a re- like we talked about this in our paladin episode about how great the paladin lay on hands ability is because it just it automatically gives like this pool of hit points, right? And just imagine that you're that paladin and you're, and you've got okay, so I've got uh, I've got twenty four hit points. I'm going to distribute uh, I'm going to distribute that. I'm going to give six hit points each to these four people, right? And the storyteller says, not so fast. I need you to pick two of those people that don't get hit points. What what do you mean? What do you mean? I need you to tell me two people that don't get hit points. Uh, Okay, these two. Fine. The other two people get the other two people get get all the hit points. Okay, they get three hit points apiece. What do you mean? I just used my ability. I had 24 hit points to give out and I only got about six. Yeah. Welcome to the caves of necromancy. It's something about that. That one in particular. That was just like. Again, it's a it's a one time thing. It just happened. Is it, it actually that one's not a one time thing because it's like anytime you're in there, you can't heal. I I love the concept of your paladin. You've got this paladin of devotion. He's the goodest of the good, the brilliant of the brilliant, <laughs> zealotus of the zealots, the shining sun among shining stars. <laughs> oh. And he walks into the caves with heels 
fashioned like dollar bills, making it rain, baby. <laughs> and all that happens is a wee bit of drizzle. <laughs> I love that imagery. Yeah. I, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I went a little more uh, traditional with the first of my layer actions, right? So I think what you've got there definitely would fall under the the rules and conditions of a layer action perfectly. Uh, it is not where it's most traditional, but it is it, it works really well. So I went with something I did uh, back at the beginning of tier two for my for for my uh, one of my games, and basically the players walked into this flower shop in the capital city of the kingdom. This flower shop was a headquarters or a hideout for this enemy thieves guild. This was one of their headquarters, one of their one of their safe houses. So you had this standard shop. I think I grabbed a map out of some book somewhere. That was just standard. Uh, I, I think it was designed as a magic shop, but it was actually just a standard shop. And, and along the east wall, which was supposed to be a solid wall, I described it being ornate with different things in it, but essentially it had little murder holes in it oh, that, that were not easily seen from the shop part. But behind that, there was a pony wall of brick and then the murder holes and then little spots where basically an, a, a, little, a squad of crossbowmen basically could line up shots and fire out the murder holes at anybody in the shop. So when the party decided they were going to get froggy, and they did in fact get froggy. <laughs> As they do. Death just rained on them from the walls. And, beca and because they were behind a relatively thick wall, and then lower than that was this brick wall, everybody on the side was completely insulated from damage. Like you could not target them. So it became effectively a layer action. That's how I had it set up. So I basically, on initiative level 20, a series of shots rang out like Indiana Jones running through the tunnel at the beginning of <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark and yes. got half the party. So the way I had it set up mechanically was they had a deck save versus 15 or take 2d8 plus 4 piercing damage Oof. every round. I just And this is a tier 2 party. So while some people did very well, the rogues, everybody else was iffy on this. And I, I started doing a fair amount of hits because they're not so much targeting as it's a volley. And, it, and the way I run my games is when a series of archers, six or more, are firing a volley into an area, I just go with deck safe area effect uh, and lower the damage because I think that makes more sense because they're not targeting. Yeah, it's basically a skill challenge at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that is happening. Meanwhile, they're fighting other bad guys and, and all the other things in the combat are happening. I was more successful with this layer action than I was with any of the things in the layer until the barbarian used his rage, ran at the wall, and literally ran through the wall successfully. He yep. char he's, a, he's a barbarian with charger, half or whole bit charged the wall, busted through the wall, brick and all, Kool-Aid man through the wall, and then he's on the other side of the archers. At that point, it was no longer a layer action. It was 10 enemies that were facing off against the barbarian. Made it last <laughs> long. <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't imagine. I wouldn't imagine as much. So that's the other thing I'm realizing kind of about my layer actions here is that uh, they they do lack a certain repeatability. They are more regional conditions. They are they are special qualities of the environment that the characters are fighting in. Yeah, right? I, I definitely think what you just described was much more accurately described as a regional effect, which is technically part of layer actions. I, I, I really like that. I, and I think that was that's pretty that's pretty good. What other ones did you have? Sure. So I've got another one here, um, uh, and you know my love of uh, of all things arachnoid. Um, <clears throat> my love of spiders is legendary. Ah, see what I did there? I see what you did there. Um, so I have a, I had another one called uh, the Lair of the Ashtar Spiders, and bre uh, the uh, the description goes: bred in the depths of the burning mountain, the Ashtar spiders are large, malevolent creatures who are as much fire as they are creatures. Experts at laying traps for prey, they are able to spin stone simulations instead of webs. 
entering their breeding grounds, any character coming into contact with the walls or rock formations in the cave must make a DC 15 strength check or gain the restrained condition. Nice. A character restrained in this way for three rounds must make a DC 15 constitution check or take 5d6 piercing damage, half on success. On a failure of more than five, they gain the poison condition and will continue to take 2d6 damage until freed by a companion succeeding on a DC 15 strength check. So again, it's kind of like how the very nature of the environment itself uh, has yeah. the possibility of restraining. Um, and then, you know, once you get once you get caught in the walls, because, you know, the, the, the whole concept is that the walls of this cave are actually these this breed of spiders uh, web. So you can get stuck to the walls. And once you get stuck to the walls, uh, the spiders will come down and eat you. So now, I had something similar, uh, at least as far as uh, how. That works because I also was working on on the, the concept of conditions, specifically restraint, almost keeping with that with that uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, I guess I'm feeling some Spielberg. <laughs> I guess you're feeling it. Yeah. Mine was uh, basically the ceremonial ceremonial grounds of the tribal shaman. So in a jungle region, tribal shaman perform their rituals of sacrifice and dread in an area prepared and filled with evil magics that work to the advantage of their dread summoners. The ritual area is dotted with creeping vines, dark orchid-like floral blooms, and damp foliage of all sorts. As an aside, be sure you're describing uh, your foliage in a detailed way. Uh, and that's true of any of these environmental things. If you yep. detail the description, add the emphasis when you need to, your players are going to ease more easily come along for that ride. What you want to do is describe the area in such a way and lead up to this. You don't want to surprise your characters, your players, with the environment. You don't want them to walk into the lair and then be confronted with things they've never seen before or have never had any concept could exist, right? So in the case of my jungle thing, the creeping vines that are hard to get through, that create difficult terrain, you want them to deal with that on the trek up. The, the exploration pillar, when you're using it, it's difficult terrain unless they have a, a, a ranger. But then you need to make sure they're aware the whole way. The ranger pointed out a way you could see yourself having gotten tangled up. You know, when they wake up in the morning, it seems like the vines are a little closer. They're getting a little tighter around stuff. You know, it's it, it, you want to describe this stuff. That's how you make it really sing for you. But here's what happens. Here's the mechanics of it all. Once you're in the lair, once the fight is on, on initiative 20, any enemy of the shaman within 10 feet feet of the edge of the ritual area is attacked by creeping vines. The DC for this attack is 14. It's a deck save. They can utilize whatever appropriate skill, if it's strength to break out, if it's acrobatics to dodge out, whatever you they want to feel is appropriate. Let your players think of a good way. If they've got survival skills, you know, if, if jungle is the favorite environment of the ranger, let survival mm -hmm. or nature be the way. Give them an ability to add to it. Of course, if you all of your characters have ways to add to it significantly, consider ratcheting up the uh, DC just a shade. You don't want to take away their advantage, but you still want it to be a challenge. You don't want a bunch of automatic successes. Once you've got that, however, here's what happens. If they are successfully hit, hit by these vines, 4d6 bludgeoning damage. Oof. Failure on the save imposes a restrained condition until they escape or break out. Success, by the way, half damage. <laughs> no condition imposed. A, a character who is restrained or can be restrained by more than one vine, if that happens, the DC to escape increases by plus one. But because it's every character within, they can only be attacked by one set of vines per round. Right, So there's a limiter here. So if they if they're restrained in round one, but they fail in round two now they and they fail to break out now they're restrained by two. The DC is now fifteen. It gets harder as more and more get on. Yep, yep. Now the vines tighten with each additional round, adding one D four bludgeoning damage for each additional <sighs> round. And that just like stacks because now you got and, multiple and, and it stacks. So this is to quote Metallica. Creepy. Death. 
that's actually I have another one called Creeping Death actually where I mean I didn't talk about it specifically but um it's where um the walls uh release uh basically a poison that moves 5 feet around and it's basically it's and it's like a, it's like a 20 foot wall that has no thickness really it's just so it's just like a 20 foot line and it just moves 5 feet around five yeah. feet around in one in one straight direction right so it's kind of kind of creeps at the uh uh but that that one wasn't fully formed <laughs> it wasn't fully formed so with this here's here's some of the things that i wanted to do i just wanted to talk options what i just gave you is the layer action for high tier one low tier two you want it to be bad you want if you're doing a layer action it's got to be legendary this is your party goes up against the campaign ending bad guy way too early you want them to realize, bad idea, time to leave. Put this in there at this level, they're out. However, you want to ratchet up that tension. Tier 2, it's 4d6 damage. The DC is now 16, and Tightening does 2d4. Hmm. Yep. Okay. You, you want to go to Tier 3, 4d8. The DC is 18. Tightening stays at, uh, is now 2d6. Tier 4, 6d10. DC 20. Tightening 2D8. Yep. I like the way you ratchet that up. Yeah. That's that's how you give it those extra tiers. And by the way, those are guidelines. If you've got a party, as I said, well-oiled machine, they're doing really well. They may be a end of tier one that punches at a tier two level. They could be a tier two team that punches at a tier three level. So consider that in your in your in your adventure construction. Consider consider the weight class your team is actually fighting at versus where they mechanically are. Uh, one other thing that I would say is, if you want to change the flavor of this type of layer action, then change the damage type. Let's say it's thorns and it's piercing damage. Or let's say it's razor vines and it's slashing damage. I mean, how creepy is that if the vines are just lacerating and you see the cuts in your leather and the blood starting to pour pour through? I'm, I'm picturing seaweed. Yeah, seaweed and seaweed and doing. Um, so what would seaweed do? Seaweed would do drag you under the water. So instead of typing, right, yeah. you're 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 getting half drowned and taking damage for the half drowning, yeah. or being slashed along the coral. So maybe the tightening damage is. Is slashing, even though the rest slashing of it is damage, the bludgeoning yeah. damage. You know, these are the types of things that are very important. It can be useful depending on the type of armor or the type of abilities or resistances your party may have. Yeah, I'm seeing quicksand too. You know, that's a it's a very similar mechanic for quicksand. Yeah, exactly. So th that's kind of where I was going with 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 my layer actions there. I think that and the shaman and the and and the tribal members doing their thing all while trying to rescue some people from some kind of ritual sacrifice and stop the big bad evil demon from being raised forth from the pits of Yagaluth uh, or whatever right. <laughs> would, would, would be very cool. And I thought that that evoked a lot of good imagery. I got one more. Uh, you got one more? Oh, yeah. How about oh, yeah. It? yeah. And I like this one. So this one I actually have set up in the same layer. And when I spoke about those dark or orchids, this is the one where the bloom comes in. So on initiative 10, the, other, the vines happen on initiative 20. On initiative 10, orchid-like flowers spew out spores towards 1d10 enemies of the ritual shaman. Again, DC 14, dex. If they hit, it's, it's 2d4 piercing damage. Failure imposes the poison condition 1D4 1D, for 1d4 rounds and this stat. Hmm. Save, wow. for, save for half damage, no conditions opposed. In a very similar action, if you want to ratchet it up, you can do tier two, 44, DC 16, 46 for three, DC 18, uh, 48 for tier four, DC 20. However, as opposed to tightening, in this case, the spores explode, causing a uh, constitution save for five, for five foot radius of the person that's hit. So now, even if you've got the rogue who you're never going to hit or the, or, or the forge clerk that you're never going to hit because he's standing next to the, the fighter that you're always going to hit. Now the forge clerk has to make that poison, that, that, that poison save. Honestly, likely your forge, your forge clerk will do well against that, 
but these are the kinds of things that you can do. Again, for uh, changing damage or changing the flavor, as opposed to the poison condition, have it charm them if you're fighting a fey villain. Mm. Have it be necrotic damage if you're fighting an undead villain. Oh, that's nice. Have it be cold damage if you're fighting uh, fey unsealia of the fey winter court. You know, these are the types of things that you can have really it be necrotic if they if it's if it's from Shadowfell or you know yeah. yeah. There's any number of have it be uh, psionic damage if you're fighting some kind of gith gith Yankee lich lord. You know, there's all ki- uh, there's all kinds of neat ways for this to go. If you're in the elemental plane of air, have it be lightning. There's all kinds of neat things that you can do to change the these types of actions up and still keep the same basic mechanics. Because I think the mechanics are sound. It's all about changing the flavor to match the game you're running. Right. And that's ultimately, so I am going to go ahead and put a cap on this now, now that you've had now you've had the chance to go ahead and, uh, and talk about your bloom action here. Because really what we're talking about with legendary and lair actions is something in the storyteller toolkit that will distract the characters from the big from the big bad that they're fight they're facing so that the big bad can go ahead and actually be effective against your your tier three forge cleric and stuff like that right so that's one thing is that they are they are serving as something else that the party needs to contend with that's that happens like we said bonus uh, the action economy is king so these are things that kind of happen outside of action economy additional to the action economy and it's not something that the big bad guy needs to necessarily control it's the environment that's that's doing it or the legendary actions that he's getting for free and stuff like that. But also, it also is giving them something to contend with that they can't necessarily defeat. Legendary actions don't go away until you defeat the big bad guy. Lair actions don't go away until you get out of the lair. It's an oppressive condition that is lowering the effectiveness of the party without giving it anything that can go ahead and fight back at. And that's why they're so effective. Absolutely. And uh, like like I said, know where your party is, is punching. Know where what their weight class is. I guess that's uh, maybe it's boxing analogies aren't the greatest with the DD <laughs> group, but I think it's very effective here. If you've got a group that's well oiled, knows what they're doing, they can be very effective. I have been with groups of players uh, where we can take level six characters and do some amazing things. The right group of players, the right characters at level six can be more effective than some level 12s. That's just a fact. May not have the hit points for it. But we can be exceptionally effective and surgical with the right characters. Absolutely. And the right players. Yeah, and the right players. Know where your party's at so you can manage these things. And don't be afraid to maneuver and scale in or scale up your encounter. If it's too big, then the floor bloom only happens once. Or maybe it happens every other round versus every round. There are ways to manage this to see, okay, the you know, a wow. I was devastating round one. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to go yeah. every other round now, or I'm going to go every third round now. There's ways to do that. Uh, and and you can do all of that without fudging dice. And that, well, that, and that gains the additional effect of, on some level, confusing your players. Like, well, they did this once. Is he doing it again? Like, what, what, else, what else is he doing that I don't know? All that kind of thing. So that's got to add a benefit. So. so lair actions, legendary actions, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Use them. I mean, just use them. Uh, start start peppering them in a little at a time. Uh, when it comes to the layer actions, prep the set on the walk up, and you'll be good to go. Um, Josh, this was awesome. I love this idea. I'm glad we it was got a good to time. sit down and talk about Absolutely, it. yeah. Well, because we see this question all the time in the D&D forums on like, Facebook and stuff. I've got a Tier 3 party. They're rolling through all the bad guys I'm throwing at them. How can I actually give them a challenge to get, that they can face? And you and I, I mean, we practically have the have the – the answer in like notepad and we copy and paste it minions legendary actions layer actions like that's going to be your friend in tier three tier four tier two even like like late tier two tier three and tier four minions legendary actions layer actions yep and wraps them up add, add them as you go absolutely yep all right my friend thank you very much uh thank you very much everybody for listening hope that you uh, enjoyed uh, the episode and uh we will talk to you again next week Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. 
can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.